Hello and welcome to Conversations from the A&F podcast. In this episode, we speak to Rebecca Pierre, a care experienced social worker. Becca came on the webcast in November and shared some of her experiences and views while promoting the Free Loves on Friday project. In this episode, she shares more of her personal story and experiences and perspectives on the care system. As always, if you've experienced of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through the Facebook or Twitter page, or you can email us at andfpodcast at gmail.com. My name's Rebecca Pierre. I'm a care experienced social worker, writer, and campaigner. And um, yeah, I suppose that the most important thing for me out of any, any of my experiences really is my lived experience and that informs my day-to-day work much more than any anything that I could say in a professional setting really yeah oh well I mean that's there's there's a whole raft of things that different directions we could go with all of that so are you comfortable sort of sharing any of your sort of care experience and obviously you know I don't want to pry into anything you don't feel comfortable talking about but could you give us are you able to give us a summary of mm-hmm. some of that yeah of course I mean I suppose I'd like to say that like most people's childhoods there were you know moments of joy and and happiness and and love and laughter but there were also some very difficult times and the reason I wanted to start with that is that I've I've seen this kind of pattern recently where wherever care experienced people talk um, there's almost a I don't know a kind of focus on you know the negatives or, or the kind of trauma so I just want to suppose add a little bit of balance there but I I went into the care system at I will say um much much later than I should have there were lots of opportunities um by doctors nurses teachers support staff um that, that really weren't picked up and so I went into care as a teenager and um at first I yeah so I've had a mix of, of foster placements um that unfortunately broke down I remember my first foster carer kicked me out um four days before Christmas with a note on the kitchen table that just said you've got four days to find somewhere else to live which you know was very difficult wow. as you can imagine um, and after that I lived in unregulated settings and then there was kind of uh, had lots of different experiences in respite foster care when when uh, that, that placement was kind of not working out and so on so uh, I mean I would I look back and it, it just feels like a, a bit of a whirlwind really mm. I mean it's just even just you, you've sort of said you've you've covered an awful lot of ground there and um but you've said enough to kind of make it quite clear of the, the complexity of that and um can I ask then from that experience, what then inspired you to become a social worker? I mean, it's not a natural progression, or is it? It's a really good question, and it's one that I reflect on quite a lot. And I, and I suppose my very honest answer, and it may not what be what you know you really want to hear on the social work podcast, is that I had two very distinct experiences of social work. As my first one was extremely difficult and painful. And um, I actually wrote an open letter to that social worker earlier this year after I read my care files, um, which were very 
where I was written about in a very disrespectful um, and inaccurate way. So I had someone who, you know, I, I, I felt at the time I wasn't listened to, my wishes weren't respected. Uh, but then after that, I actually had a, a really positive, uh, very kind, very caring social worker who was the first person in my life who really validated me and encouraged me to go to university. And so I suppose then getting, um, yeah, getting into early adulthood and thinking what's important to me, um, what happened in my life to, to get me over those hurdles. Um, I wanted to go into the system to be A, unlike the first social worker I had, and B, to somehow try and be <laughs> half the social worker, the second social worker that I had. Yeah, because um, it's a question I ask, because um, I'm a practice educator, and so I often ask it, very first question of any student I get is, well, why do you want to be a social worker? And, and often people feel like it's a trick question. And I say it's not, mm. it's, there is no right answer. Um, but have people sort of, have people queried that, you know, as you've gone through your training and, you know, you've, you've uh, going through your, your qualification, have people sort of, has that experience and that route been a, has it been a step up or has it been a step down, has, you know, has, or, you know, what, what have people sort of responded to you? Yeah, so I'll be really honest and say I didn't actually start talking about my care experience really until I was 27. And only, the only reason that I started talking about it was because I saw the horrific scandal um, of, of what was happening with unregulated placements. And, and I felt like, I can't hold back any longer. I'm in a really rare position where I have a small platform. I have some privilege there in, in, in having lived through this, but also having a small entry point to talk about it. And so it felt like a duty to, to expose that. But uh, before that, there was just so much shame and stigma that um, when I think back to my social work interview, I think I, I kind of mentioned in passing that, oh, by the way, I, I lived in a hostel and I had really a uh, harsh experience of social services when I was growing up, but um, that would have probably been about one sentence in the whole thing. So it's been a real journey for me to even get to the point to to get the courage really to start talking about this. So so I'd say the old the older I've got, the more I've been willing to join those dots and be honest. Mm. And it feels like it's there's a there's an environment, current environment where there's a value add been really given to people's care experience and maybe a reduction in stigma so how, what are your thoughts and perceptions of that you know as we try to, there's lots of organizations and lots of small groups and specific individuals who have sort of open about their experience and journey mm, well i think the first thing i would say is yes there has been some momentum and, and some step forward um, and of course that is welcome, but in all of these things, whenever we're thinking about a marginalised group, it comes with risk. So I, I would say that sometimes um, that there has been a pattern of some organisations maybe only engaging with care leavers during National Care Leavers Week or, you know, expecting mm. um, young, you know, even children in care or young people to come and talk be a part of a panel for free and and um so i think the the intentions there but i don't know if the care around care leaders is truly there you know because it, there's a lot of emotional work and, and vulnerability in, in speaking up and 
as I shared with you, I didn't stop talking about my own care experience till my late 20s. And in a way, I'm, I'm glad that was the case because I don't think I had emotionally processed all of the trauma that I'd been through until that point. But I, I am concerned about, you know, uh, younger people who maybe are just wheeled in and out for the odd conference and then left with no kind of aftercare. So I mm. think it's a, it's a mixed bag, really. I mean, have you seen that? Have you sort of seen specific instances? I don't I would, obviously I don't want to name and shame, but um, have you seen things that you where you thought actually that is not doesn't cut the mustard? Yeah, I mean, I I am lucky at the moment to be part of a really loving care experience community and, and a forum that I've never had my whole life really until the last couple of years. Um, and I would say, you know, I'm I'm not able to kind of name or shame or anything like that, but that you know, this is kind of anecdotes that have been shared with me, um, but also just speaking to young people who have shared, you know, that they may have talked about a very personal and traumatic experience for the first time on the podium. Um, and then people might clap and people might, you know, it might be a 10 minute flurry at the end to, to thank the person and that's mm. it, they're just left with this void. Um, and so this kind of pattern of trauma mining, but but a lack of aftercare, which is something I'd really love to talk about today. I mean, I don't have all of the answers, um, but just to talk really about how to meaningfully support care experience people when they do generously share what's on my heart. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a phrase I've not heard before, trauma mining. That's really, that's a really interesting. So, I mean, I can guess what that means, but is that a phrase that's come from the community? Yeah, I don't know where I first heard it. I don't think it did originate from within the community, but like you, when when I heard it, it really struck a chord because that there are some things in life that just don't feel right and, and you can't explain why. And then suddenly you'll hear a catchphrase or a keyword that really captures it. But essentially, uh, it means, you know, I suppose, if I'm really honest, it, in humanity, there's a lot of kind of voyeuristic tendencies that we don't like mm. to admit it, but, uh, you know, people almost hear other, you know, the trauma or suffering of other people as, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of media value in that, or there's a lot of interest um Sadly, you know, if you think about the media, it's the bad news that sells the quickest. And so I think that's yeah. where it comes from, really, people, you know, using and almost exploiting people's stories for a quick fix and then moving on without thinking about the impact on that person. Yeah. So what would you like to, how would you like to see the the voices of care experience sort of either presented or uh, utilised? What would be a good example or a good model that you'd be comfortable with or you have seen or thinking of I, I mean I think the first thing that I'm, I'm just going to name the elephant in the room really if that's okay and that um I kind of mentioned before that I'm in a really rare privileged position I, you know there's thousands of care experienced people out there who a don't even know their care, care experience because they might not have come across the language but mm. b don't have access to the community or uh, you know any kind of influence and so I think it starts with looking for the care experience people who aren't easy to find. So the people who aren't on Twitter or, um, you know, who who wouldn't just pop up on a Google search, I suppose. And and that's that's not always easy because you've got the, the you know, the double jeopardy of A, care experience people are much less likely to 
um, end up in positions of power or influence or go to university and so on so that so they might not have the confidence but be um, there's a lot of fear around disclosing so I, I think with all those battles in mind it would be about uh, going to local authorities um, using kind of grass work, grassroots networks to find people in, in meaningful ways really Cause I, I, I had some other thoughts, but I wondered what your your thoughts. Well, were on that as room. you said that, I thought you know we often see these statistics that are that are you know that are used uh, rightly or wrong. You know, well, statistics can you know can be a rod to beat anyone's back with, but often in relation to um, within the prison um, prisoner community, and you think, well, mm-hmm. there there's a, a place to start, but a very marginalised group for all obvious reasons, you know and uh, a complicated group to engage with for a whole host of reasons. But that's a, that's a community that is, and also then within um, people experiencing mental ill health, that there's a, again, that's accessing really, really vulnerable communities, complicated communities. You know, is that, well, we're just spitballing now, but is that, is that on the agenda? Is anyone looking at that? Um, I don't know if they are. I think they're really good points. And I know that, 25% of, of people in prison have been in care or have care experience and also you know we all know that if you are care experienced you're much more likely to um, suffer and experience poor mental health and so this is the thing about care experiences there's so many different hidden um, intersectionalities and so much additional hidden discrimination that you're you know twice as likely to end up homeless and have all these mm. adverse experiences which makes um the, the true care experience voices that we need to hear of the people who don't have um privilege or influence um really difficult to find or or to engage with and i really hate the term hard to engage actually um i, I remember very clearly someone saying that about me um, I, I was at a foster placement and the crisis team came round and um, immediately I shut down because this was about the fifth or sixth worker that I'd had. And just to be really real with you as well, um, the, the, it wasn't no fault of his own at all, but the crisis team worker represented or was very physically similar to someone uh, who had hurt yeah. me in um, in the past, and so I was just going into complete shutdown mode. I didn't want to be there, um, and so I, you know, I'm just staring at the table. I think the one comment I made was, "Well, haven't you read my care files?" Uh, you know, uh, I, yeah. I just didn't want to be there, and so I was described as someone who was disengaged and you know couldn't be bothered. But we need to look much beyond that. I think. Yeah, I mean. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a lot. You can't describe, you know, if we're thinking about the prison community, you can't describe them as hard to engage with. If the reason they're hard to engage with is because you're not even trying. You know, that's, you know, know, look in the mirror. Um, And I often, you know, I work in fostering. And um, so we, you know, long, I've worked with an agency with foster carers for a long period of time, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And some of those children have been with those families for a long time, which is fun, which is really exactly what we would want, you know, stable homes. Um, and it's just clear to me that why on earth would a young person want to meet with me? You know, why on earth would you want, you know, you, I am just a, I'm a manifestation of their circumstance. I'm a, 
I'm another reason to feel like you don't actually, I'm not, you know, and I say in inverted commas, I'm not like my friends normal. And you go, well, you know, so, so I need to be better at my job. I need to be more creative or not necessarily rock up into children's lives, but I need to find, I need to satisfy myself that everything's fine. But that doesn't mean I have to talk to them. Um, <laughs> so there's lots of creative ways. And I think it just, it seems sometimes it feels like an, a total, like empathy vacuum in the, in the, in institutionally or within the in individual anyway you've got me talking I, I got you here for you to talk <laughs> no but I, i'm just listening to you and kind of you, you know really nodding along because uh when you were talking actually i had this flashback to living in the um unregulated placement i lived in and just just to give you some context so this was a really grotty bedsit where i didn't have electricity half the time to afford it. I lived with, you know, grown adults who had just got out of prison and all of this stuff still happens today because of government policies around unregulated and careless settings. But anyway, so I was in the bedsit and you know I've got the uh the social worker ringing me up. Um on I had like a little I, I couldn't charge my phone a lot of the time because of no electricity, but I had a kind of wired um phone attached to to the wall right. anyway so <laughs> yeah she, she was kind of you know where where the, where the hell are you i've been you've got your appointment downstairs and can just be real with you we talk a lot about pull and push factors there was absolutely no pull factors i did not want to go downstairs in this bedsit which involved going down three floors and potentially bumping into scary adults and drug dealers so it was honestly just scary walking down the corridor um i didn't want to go downstairs sit down um while my social worker got out a clipboard of a load of questions um you know what what was that offering me of value um not a lot really it was mm. just have you applied for local council housing um you know time's ticking you've got to be out of this place um in two years and so that wasn't a value and what would have been of value was not just sticking me in a clinical setting like that but actually meeting me where i was at and, and i suppose the final point i want to make is that when you're in care you're often on survival mode so you know my priority at that time for example was where's my next meal coming from um how am i going to Oh, oh God, it's the, it's the half-term holidays. I'm not going to have electricity for a week. So how am I going to find the next hot shower? Or how am I going to charge my laptop so I can do my coursework? Or any number of things. And, and my priority wasn't um, sitting down and having a conversation with someone, you know? So, yeah. Which, which seems like an, um, um, well, it seems like a huge lack of empathy or the ability to just sort of think about what, someone's lived experience is and to put your the sort of bureaucratic needs before the actual reality of someone's life well this is it because i think um the, the professional i'm talking about at the moment um that this was the this was the positive experience of social work that i had and i know that they were under an awful lot of pressure to meet those targets and to free up beds and so you know it's it's uh, not a thing of blame but the point is they were in that environment between nine to five um and then they could just go away from you know the kind of grotty hostel and the the stench of 
like urine in the corridors and the yeah. fights and the gangs at five o'clock as hard as that is they would go home to a warm comfortable house and i was i was just left there you know so it, yeah it's very different yeah so i'm not sure how we got exactly onto that because i think we were talking about um uh, trauma mining weren't we we got from trauma mining to uh but that's fine um and you mentioned that you had a couple of ideas about how you would sort of access the views of people with care experience yeah. and kind of help them to and utilize them in a way that was meaningful and respectful and you know give offered value to them so go on then yes share with the group yeah so thank you for bringing me um back on on track with that so the first one was to find the right people so not just to find the people like me who you know you can identify mm. on on twitter very easily i think the next one would be truly think about a package of care and and what that means isn't just wheeling someone in for a half an hour keynote clapping them and then saying see you next year it's about really it building up a relationship um with the person getting to know uh what support they need um providing some really meaningful aftercare so i think a lot of the time care experienced people might be given a feedback form or some applause but that's it and and actually you're just then left with those feelings so you know is the local authority or organization offering you know follow-up um, care afterwards whether that's therapeutic care or whether it's paying that young person um, an additional half a day rate so that they don't have to rush back to um, the day job at, at ASDA or, or wherever that may be um, but so that they can take the day off and really um, engage in self-care um, you know whether that's paying them for half a day and paying them an additional rate to go in and do um, a fun activity that they enjoy so i think that would be one of them that meaningful um care and support and yeah. i think the other thing to say is to really think meaningfully about diversity and inclusion as well and recognize that different groups may have um different barriers and, and might be harder to reach so um if you're working with um for example someone from a gypsy roma traveler community um are you are you thinking about those needs and how they can be met and i i think the final one would be to really let the person let the agenda so again we see so many examples of people being wheeled in and out and to fit in someone else's agenda but actually yeah. are you allowing that young person you know absolute control so that they don't have to just fit in to what you're doing and that they can meaningfully do it so it's i mean co-production is thrown around such a lot but mm. i don't think what we do in the sector is co-production i think it's more weighted about you know 90 10 in the favor of organizations yeah so yeah a good example would be we're doing a conference about x we need to go and find a young person or an adult who can talk about x mm. uh, um which you know as someone who's run the odd conference that there's a kind of a streamlined nature of that but actually that's that's messy isn't it when you when you're talking about people's lived experience i'm i was mindful of um i was recalling when i was a student um in my final year and we'd had a we had sort of one really tiny slither of work or module about um, fostering and so they asked a couple of young people to come in who were who were actually they're just on the cusp of aging out of foster care and they were on the way to university and um 
I mean, they were really nice at articulate young people sort of sharing their experience and their hopes and aspirations for university. And um, once they'd gone, I kind of, I mean, I'd been a foster care as well. And I said, you know, this isn't, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, they're fantastic young people, but they're just, they don't represent the care community at all. They are, they are the exception. They, you, they've amazing, you know, no, no disrespect to them at all, but this is not, this is not fostering. <laughs> Or mm. the majority of fostering. That's really interesting that you you say that actually because I think you're right. I think the people who um, have their voice heard in the end maybe aren't the ones who are who are truly who we truly need to to meet. And and this is the thing we can't just keep on recycling the same voices, the same stories. And I say this including mine because you know sometimes I. I think we need to think about uh, making space for for others um, who haven't had voices. And and just before I forget, there's there's two um, points that I want to make about how else to kind of engage uh, care experience people. Mm. The first yeah. one is based on what you said actually, and it's not to just pigeonhole people as experts in care experience because. Um, you know, if you ask the average care experienced person what they want to do with their life or the things that they love, uh, I don't particularly think anybody dreams that, you know, if you ask a five or six year old what they want to do, it might be, I don't know, like be an astronaut or yeah. or whatever it is. And and so to, to not just ask care experienced people to come and do training on that because it's so emotionally loaded and it's at such a personal cost. So ask them, what else are you an expert in? Oh, oh, great. So you're in construction. Come and, you know, can you um, come and speak to us about that? Or can you come and inspire young people to, to go into that career without necessarily disclosing your lived experience? I think the other point I wanted to make was putting wraparound practical support there for people. So not to just assume, you know, it really annoys me when... Uh, care experienced people are just asked oh you know in line with our company policy can you send the slides three weeks in advance well have you thought about does that person have a safe space to even access a computer do they have electricity at home can they afford wi-fi um and, and so really going to the heart of what their practical needs are and, and making sure that they're met and i suppose on this just to say that um i'm just about to launch an anthology called Free Loaves on Fridays and, and the yes. heart of that anthology is to cast the net out far and wide to, to hear from the people that we we never really hear from and and the heart of this book really um, and the proceeds go to Article 39 and Together Trust who are two amazing charities, the heart of this book is to say right enough is written about us, enough is said about us, It's now it's our time to speak for ourselves yeah, I mean that was on my list of things to ask you about because I know that your um, it's sort of there's an element of it being crowdfunded. So definitely, what I'll do is I'll put the link to the uh, web page so that you people can put money into that because I'm sure that you're not going to if you stop at 100. I'm sure if you got to 120 or 130 percent, that would be wonderful. I'm sure you'd find a good use for the money. And um, can I ask um, a, a question? Because I know that we're we had a really good conversation beforehand you know let's not pretend we didn't we you know we didn't just bump into each other in the street um and obviously you you the nature of the work you do at the moment you 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 want to be really mindful and you want to keep really clear clear space between your who you work for and your personal views but can i ask you what your thoughts on the whole sort of there's a there's a movement around 
um, being care experienced or being a care leaver as being a protected characteristic. Because I hear a lot, I hear mm-hmm. different views, and um, and I'm sort of I'm a simpleton, so I tend to believe the last person who told me and go with mm-hmm. their views. So I'd be interested to know what you thought. Yeah, well, I think it's a really uh, interesting de- debate, and I'm, I want to start by being positive about this. I think that there is a lot of value in the suggestion and and I think it comes from a really good place of uh, recognising that care experienced people are discriminated against and absolutely need protection. I think though what I would have liked to see or what I would like to see alongside that recommendation is um, a, a, a kind of package of care around that because it shouldn't be that the onus of um, disclosing yeah. is on is on us. As I said to you, I didn't even have the courage to disclose until my late twenties, and certainly mentioning that to employers or sticking it on an interview form just isn't something I'd want to do. Because even if uh, I was working with a really kind and supportive employer, let let's be real, um, the majority of the time that we see care experience in the media, it's for um, it's for a negative reason. And an example of that is, uh, you know, if you Google children's home uh, protest, um, you'll see a whole host of articles where local communities, people who are considered safe, you know, in in kind of safe, secure cul-de-sacs are actively uh, protesting against, you know, children's home being built on their street. And so if that's the kind of discrimination that we see in in so-called safe communities, then then there's so much beneath that. So I think that it needs to come with and alongside a package of care, a real campaign to educate the public about what care experience is and and anti-discrimination around that. And um, it also needs to come with therapeutic support so care experienced people can be supported through their trauma um, so that they can disclose and access any benefits. But the other thing point I want to make is if we look at the Equality Act 2010, has it really changed things meaningfully for, for example, women, um, disabled people, um, black and minoritized communities? I think unequivocally the answer is no. So it's not a silver bullet. Yeah. I mean that is interesting because you could see that there's a legislative there's a there's a legislation backing that up in relation you know on a, I said I work used to work in construction ramps um mm-hmm. right okay we're gonna we're gonna create an environment that's equal so there was something that backed that up and there was a very you know having worked in construction it was there was an absolute mm-hmm. furor about getting ready for that but are we there yeah. yet no we're not there because it's much more than ramps but we need ramps but there's an awful lot and I think that that is an interesting conversation around um like you say, not in my backyard, the whole, yeah, we, we need more care homes, but can we put them somewhere else, please? Mm, messy. I agree. So, um, it's been really, really wonderful talking to you. Um, and I feel like there's so many more questions I could ask you about lots of different things, but I think I will, I'm, I might come back to you again, if that's okay, when we've got something else to talk about, because I really enjoyed, uh, I mean, maybe the one question I did have around care experience, and it's a slightly sort of, it's a, a bit of a spiky question, really, um, in relation to how do we weigh the voices of care experienced people? Or, well, let's remove it from care experience, but the, the whole notion of expert by experience, because I work in, I'm an adoptive parent, and I'm considered mm-hmm. to be an expert by experience in adoption as an adoptive parent. 
I meet lots of people and I think you have experienced an awful lot, but you, but the nature of the experience means that you, you don't really understand what's happened to you, you or you don't, you can't see it clearly or you are just existing. You're not reflecting. Mm -hmm. You're just, you are literally just coping with every day as it comes to because of the nature of your experience. Do you think there's a, are you seeing people having those conversations or are we just sort of universally accepting people's experience when we mm. gather it? Um, so John Radu um, has written a really insightful article on, on this very point and, and the some of the complexities that you raise. I think there needs to be a both and approach to, um, you know, hold in mind lived or I, I like the term direct experience alongside you know so-called professional or practitioner experience because I think that you can't have one without the other and both bring unique sets of expertise that um, are much stronger together than they are apart and to be honest with you if you'd have asked me um, what my opinion of this would be when I was maybe in the care system when I was just you know very um I was being re-traumatized every, you know, every day living in um, an unacceptable environment. I think I, I would have felt so much anger and pain in my heart that I would have said, oh, of course, you know, I, I'm the real expert. Um, uh, and in some ways I would have been right because, yes, I I had the, the lived felt um, experience. Um, you know, every one of my five senses lived um, and breathed in that environment with no break at evenings or weekends. But I think now I see it differently that I wasn't equipped with the tools to really understand trauma or my own responses. And it's only again in my late twenties that mm. I've really begun and, and still go to therapy to to begin to understand the tip of the iceberg of that. And so um, I don't think any of us are the true expert. I think true ex anything close to true expertise has to come from a, a collection of voices as well. You know, it can't just be me waffling on uh, on, a on a podcast, be considered an expert. It has to be a true diverse representation from, you know, the far, mm. the far corners of, of care experience to even get close to that. Yeah. Can I ask you one more question then? And but I feel free not to answer this because I don't want to compromise you or make you feel a bit, you know, is that do you then sort of have, do you sort of flit or do you feel like you are slightly caught between these two stools of being an expert expert by experience and a social worker? Because both of them are valid in their own right. Mm -hmm. Is it an awkward? Is it an awkward space between the two? Is it, you know, or is it not? Or is it more simple than that that you are a social worker and you are a? Is it, and does that how people interact with you? How people, you know, I read your twitter bio and it was really you know that's my access point is all right you are these two things so i i don't know whether i'm articulating but i just think it's an interesting space and is there a conflict there uh, it's a really valid question and if i'm honest it's something that i'm still really trying to understand myself because you know if you uh it's not as if you can uh cut me in in two and have the care experience part there and the social worker there actually it's much more complex and much more messy than that the two are really intertwined and and both of them um inform the other without a doubt i think um in frontline social work i i possibly did um decompartmentalize my 
care experience to some degree and that yeah. that was because you know I had wonderful employers but I, I you know we exist in social work in this very um in an environment of professional anxiety and, and you know there's boundaries everywhere and you have to be hyper alert to not sharing or not bringing you know you can bring yourself to the profession but not too much and there's you know there's kind of unspoken <laughs> limits enough. so exactly so in the past I think as a frontline social worker I was practicing in ways that I I thought at the time oh this is just my style so for example I really love to bring I mean it's a bit unconventional but I had a, a skateboard that I'd bring to visits just because I don't know there's something about doing activities and being alongside people and, and movement because so much trauma is stored and trapped in yeah. the body and all that so I was doing this kind of uh, off the wall stuff really and I think at the time I'd have said oh no that's just my style as a social worker but probably if I stopped to think about it I'd have recognized hang on no I hated sitting across the table making eye contact with a social worker so I'm probably doing this at some subconscious level as a you know re reaction to what I had and so I, I think it's really uh, a really interesting question and one that I'm probably going to navigate for the rest of my life. As you were saying that I realized that there's that there's comparisons for myself as well because obviously as an adoptive parent mm. um i don't work i made a conscious choice not to work with adoptive parents but inevitably you know adoptive parents turn up so you kind of you're right okay well we need to do this and you know having those supervision discussions and um with my superiors and going look right this is this may be too close to the knuckle for me or this is um you know this is what i'm thinking can i run this past you so have you been able to have those conversations with those around you? I, again, you know, you mentioned you've been, you're, as you've got older, you've felt more comfortable, but as a young, newly qualified social worker, was that just not somewhere you wanted to go? Yeah, I think if I'm really honest, it, I just, I kind of um, really shut down that part of my life as a survival strategy. So, right. you know, when I, the first day I went to university, I'd, um, saved up my mcdonald's wages all summer li literally just to afford the travel to university from my unregulated placement um you know i, I arrived with my life in ikea bags and kind of thought in my mind you know uh, i went to um the uni of hull and i saw the whole bridge uh, the kind of um humber bridge approach and i thought i've made it you know here i am this is the end <laughs> actually um, the, I, I went... the whole bridge <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Um, want to rival the kind of uh, famous bridges of New York. But anyway, so I then arrived at my the house there and I realised for the first time in my life really what I was missing out on. So all of my flatmate, you know, my new housemates were there, their parents were family members, guardians, whoever, were kind of anxiously filling up the cupboards and filling up the fridge and, and paying the rent deposit. And I arrived just absolutely clueless. Um, no deposit to give the landlord no food to put in the fridge or anything like that and um you know i've i've got so far into this memory i almost can't remember how i got here now oh, oh yeah. that was it so so it was that um yeah so on on that day then when all of this happened and i kind of you know made a comment to my housemate about where i'd just come from um and I got a really negative 
you know, kind of reaction and yeah. they didn't want to know. And there was a lot of, you know, joking and stereotypes. So I think that that on my first day of university, I was taught it's not okay. It's not acceptable to share yeah. this. It's not safe. So then I just didn't for years, really. Um, so yeah, apologies. I went on a big tangent there, but, but that's kind of the point I was making. No, I mean, that that really, you've really painted a picture and, and helped us to really understand how that would completely understandably mean you just become quite cautious or you know cautious guarded however you want to describe it but actually this information is not you don't know how it's going to be received so best to just suck it and see um which is why i'm a little bit reticent around um i think i see the value and protective characteristics but i know from personal experience just how hard it is to disclose and so why it needs to come in a package of support that you rounded that off amazingly. I tell you that is that was perfect. That was just wonderful. I, you 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 took me right back to the question. I, I'm <laughs> mightily impressed. So we'll be expecting a podcast from you very soon. And um, Becca, you've take I've taken up loads of your time. I really appreciate it. And I think you've um, from from me as a professional, you've really made me think a lot about the whole expert by experience, the whole that whole narrative. Um, but just on a you know on a professional level, just you know. Sounds like you're doing a great job. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for being honest. Oh, well, thank you for having me and for, you know, hearing my voice. And I really hope that together we can, you know, amplify the voices of people who don't have the, um, you know, the kind of platform that, that I have, because I, I feel like for me now, it's really time to pass on that button and um, to, you know, to make space for other people. So, mm. yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll read out. I'll direct people to your website so people can um, put a few pence, a few pounds towards um, hearing more stories by people with lived experience. So, thank you very much, and look after yourself. Thank you. You too.